it is a joy and privilege to uh, to be able to preach this morning. Um, I'm always grateful for the opportunity uh, just to, to be able to stand here and, and preach God's word. And we're continuing on in our summer series on the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And on one level, it's a little odd that we would spend time researching and thinking about the prayers of someone else, even if it's the Apostle Paul. And we just say from the start that uh, we're not placing Paul on a pedestal. We're not saying his words are magical, that if you recite them enough times, like a genie in a bottle, you get what you want. But, uh, but it's just the fact that we see that Paul, God placed Paul in a really special place, that Paul lived in a really special time, the emergence of the church was happening. He was witness to many of those early churches being birthed or formed, had interaction with a lot of those early churches. So God put him in a place where he interacted with Christians from all over the known world at that time. So for us to look and see how did he give leadership to and then pray for all of these Christians, all these churches, is a really special thing for us. Uh, it it uh, it's it's a, it's gives us insight into how we should pray for one another and our local church as well. And so today we're looking at how Paul prayed with love, and not only did he pray from a heart of love, but as he prayed for others, his prayer for them was for more love that they would love well, and he engaged in prayer for them because he loved those to whom he was writing. Uh, he didn't do it out of obligation. He actually loved the people he was writing to. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that he also prayed for an increase of love in the hearts of his readers or his hearers. So let's turn over to, to Paul's letter to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 9 and look at verses 9 to 11. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. It'll be on the screen, I do believe, as well. Yep, there it is. So uh, starting in verse 9, it says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Well, in thinking about this passage and in this Philippian church, it almost seems strange, the thing that Paul prays for. Uh, this church was near and dear to Paul's heart. He had a really special connection to this church. He loves them in a special way. And much like Jesus had kind of his inner circle of, of those three, of Peter, James, and John, uh, Paul in a lot of ways could include this church in his inner circle it was in Philippi that Paul and Silas met Lydia and saw her whole faith, her whole family uh, profess faith in Jesus. Her whole household came to faith. And just a few days after that, Paul and Silas found themselves wrongly in prison, unlawfully imprisoned. And in the night, as they're uh, in the prison cells, shackled together, they, they just begin to sing praises to God. And God miraculously lets the walls just crumble and collapse. The prison collapses and no one's hurt and no one escapes. And, and through that experience, the jailer and his entire family all profess faith in Jesus. They all come to faith in Christ. So Paul sees the beginnings of two different churches birthed in the city. And just that experience would made this a pretty special place for him. Um, but you also get a glimpse of this just two verses before what we read here in verses 7 and 8. 
It says, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. That's what he says. I have you in my heart and you're all partners or partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, for God is my witness how I deeply miss all of you or I long for you in Christ with the affection of Christ Jesus. So we know that even though this church is thought to have been from a, a, a more impoverished background, they are ones who are faithfully and consistently providing financial assistance and support for Paul. So there's a special relationship between Paul and this church. And because this church is so near to, and dear to Paul's heart, it seems like he almost has an even higher bar for them. So this isn't just uh, words of obligation. It's actually he's raised the bar to say, because I love you so much, this is what I'm praying, that your love, even though you've been loving, I pray that your love would increase. Uh, but the fact that he writes these words, he's, he's praying for this amazingly loving church to grow in their love. Um, it's not from a place of correction. Paul sees their heart and their love for one another, and he wants them to, to grow in that. So let's break this passage up a bit, and let's just mine what we can from it today. We're just going to walk kind of verse by verse through this. So starting in verse 9, he says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So verse 9 this morning reveals the root, the root of all that, that Paul is praying, and that root is love. And if that's the case, then it would be in our best interest to just to take a minute and define what we mean by love. Because you can go a whole lot of places around the world and experience a whole lot of cultures who define this in a whole lot of different ways. You can see love is defined as many different things. So what is Paul talking about when he uses the word love here in this context? Paul's prayer is for their love to increase. What is love? That's really important. The, the reason it's important for us to know that what Paul means when he uses the word love is because he then moves on to talk about knowledge and discernment. He ties those things together to love, which seems kind of odd. You know, how do you have love tied to knowledge and discernment? And then talks about character and, and holiness and, and all these things. And the only way we can rightly understand how these things are tied and linked is to understand what Paul meant when he defined love. And many of us saw a great illustration of this just this past week. If you were at Neil and Claire's wedding, what a beautiful, beautiful celebration that was. Biblical Christ-centered love isn't rooted in and anchored in emotion. We heard that at the wedding, and, and that is true. Uh, emotions are definitely part of it, but that is not the main emphasis. At its core, biblical love is rooted in a person's will. We, we, it's a choice to love. And this is why we see Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. Love is kind. It's humble. Uh, there are several Greek words that were used in Paul's day to, to communicate love. And, and our word here in this verse for 1-9 is the same exact Greek word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 13. When he, in that passage I just referenced, it's the Greek word agape. And it's helpful for us to look at how Paul impacts this in 1 Corinthians 13. So we won't take long, but just a second. Look at 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. It'll be on the screen as well. Paul writes this, that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. 
It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It takes an act of choice to be patient, does it not? Think about your week, just this week. Were there moments of impatience you experienced? Could you have had a, a, a better decision in that, in that moment to, to exercise patience? It's, it takes, it's, there's a choice involved with patience. Sometimes it is hard to be kind to others. It takes an active, willful choice to be kind to others. And it can be difficult to be humble. I mean, you think about, if any of you have, like my family, we have a family chat. And I know if, uh, one particular family has a larger family chat in our church. And I've heard of the rivalry that can exist in, in some sporting events pop up. And it can be difficult to be humble in certain situations. Uh, some of you are giving me, like, I see, like, guilty faces looking back at me. And I love it. Uh, humble. It, yeah, this is what love is. Because this is who God is. God is patient. He's kind. He's humble. He doesn't boast. He, he, he doesn't envy. We see this on display throughout the life of Jesus. And, and Jesus was, was kind to those who society cast aside. He was patient with, with his disciples, even though time and again, they don't understand. They just don't understand what you're trying to teach, even though he's speaking plainly. They, they have a hard time embracing his truth sometimes. Jesus is the embodiment of these things. And that's why Paul writes in Colossians 1 that he's the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's imaging all that God is. That, and if we were somehow to take a picture of all that God is, the photo would turn out to be a picture of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Everything that God is, we see in Jesus a chapter later in Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For the entire fullness of God's nature, think about that for a second, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells in Christ in bodily form, that Jesus is the embodiment of all that God is in the flesh. It's why Hebrews 1 says in 1.3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression or the exact representation of the nature of God. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word. In Hebrews 1, Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God in physical bodily form. Jesus lived out what it meant to be the nature of God, the embodiment of God, the character of God. And in our passage, in Philippians 1, we're looking at love based on who God is, who Jesus imaged. Who he, who he pictured, who he embodied. And, and here's the thing about this kind of love, and I, I say this fully recognizing and admitting that what I'm saying is completely opposite and counter to what our culture would affirm. It takes an active choice to love in this 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. It takes an active, willful decision to do that. You don't trip into it. You don't stumble into it. You don't fall into it. You actively, not passively, choose to do it. You actively work to be patient, kind. Think of others as more important than yourself. God didn't accidentally love you. He didn't trip and stumble and accidentally choose to love you. No, he was very intentional about that. He freely chose to demonstrate his love to you and to me. In fact, that's what Romans 5 tells us. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God proves or he demonstrates his lone love for us and that while we were sinners, enemies, opposed to him, 
Christ died for us. So it's for that reason we can say that love is tied to these other things in our passage. Knowledge, every kind of discernment, superior things in character. And, and so this is about growing more and more into a place of having an informed picture of who God is and how he loves. So as we look at this prayer, it's not just uh, reading it at face value to say, I hope you grow in, in love. No, it's, it's about a much bigger thing we're going to see today. It impacts the whole entire life because then it's about endeavoring to be a mirror image of, of, of who Christ is, all those things we talked about. And that's why Paul says these things to a group that he already thinks very highly of, that he already says, you're doing well at loving, who already loved him and others well. So he says in verse 9 that he prays that their love would keep on growing. Now, the literal translation uh, for is a, is a type of growth that continues and continues, overflowing beyond the specific measure that was expected. So he's not saying, I, I pray that you just grow by that much. He's saying, I, I pray that you would grow beyond any kind of measure to where it just it's overflowing out of your life, an unmeasurable amount. Uh, this is speaking of a hunger that can't be filled. Early church father John Chrysostom, who lived in the late 4th, early 5th century, he wrote about this, this very verse. And he says this. It's going to be on our quote. It should be on the screen. He says, For he who loves the object of his love is willing to stay at no point of love. For it's impossible there should be a measure of so noble a thing. Now, to be honest, it took me about six readings of that <laughs> sentence to really fully get what he's saying. Because uh, I read it, and I was like, oh, that sounds like it might be like really deep. And then as I read it and read it and read it, I was like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, let's, let me read this again, and I'll fill in. This is my own kind of help me think through a commentary. For he who loves the object of his love, God, God is the object of our love. He's willing to stay at no point of love. So he isn't willing to stop and bask in the love at any point. He's not, he doesn't want to stop anywhere because he only wants more and more of the object of the love, which is he only wants more of God. For it's important that there should be a measure of so noble a thing. It's, I'm sorry, it's impossible there should be a measure of so noble a thing. So there's no measure to the nobility of such a life. So this is what we're talking about, this insatiable kind of hunger. And, and I hope you're seeing here this morning that, that Paul's not writing part of this greeting just, all right, here's my, as you would in any kind of letter, email, or text, so, hey, how you doing? Let me get to the actual part of the content. No, he's, this is genuine. Out of the depths of my heart, I pray that, that, that you would grow in love for God and for one another, for this in an insatiable kind of way. Love is the root of everything else we're going to look at today. Like, like a motorway that kind of carries you on the path of all these things. This is, this is where the joining point. Uh, it's, it's also the currency that you acquire more and more of the things of God, love. Love isn't the end in and of itself, as we're going to see in the rest of these verses. So if love is the root of it all, uh, let's look at how the root grows followed by that last verse where it reveals the purpose of the root in our lives. To do that, let's keep reading. He says, And I pray this, that your love would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So it's not, it's not just about uh, growing in love, but it's about their love growing in knowledge and every kind or all discernment. If I were writing this, just to be fair, I wouldn't have written it this way. Maybe that's why God didn't have me write this letter to the Philippians. Because that seems a little odd to me. 
that, I mean, to love to grow in knowledge, love to grow in discernment. In, in the context of the kind of love that God has, though, that's, that's anchored in the will and not just emotional whims, this makes more sense. I mean, the word knowledge here is referring to a firsthand experiential kind of understanding. It's, it's talking about love that grows in firsthand experience of who God is. And that shouldn't be hard for us to understand given the day we live in. It wasn't that long ago that many of us, most, all of us, were locked in our homes. And the only contact we had was by device, video. To, if you want to see your loved one, your friend, it was a Zoom call or a FaceTime call or WhatsApp call or whatever platform you used. And if you were like us, in some ways, we actually spoke to our loved ones more frequently in those days, just checking in, just getting to know, just seeing how things were going. And the frequency increased. However, even if you spoke to your loved ones every single day, there was still no substitute for actual in-person, physical interaction with your loved one. You just couldn't substitute for that. It's just not the same thing. Nor can we substitute that for that mode of communication in, in our relationship with Christ. So, yes, it's okay to check in with God, uh, but, man, how, how good, how rich is it to have deep interaction with who God is through his word? To, the proximity is, is, is a great thing. Uh, time spent in, in God's presence is a good thing. Paul's writing about firsthand experience of being in and growing in love with God. He's talking about deep love, not based on the quick check-in, but one based on time and depth, which only comes through God's Word. And there's a reason we know that this, that, uh, this is rooted in God's Word, because this, this is God's written revelation of Himself to us. It tells us all that we need to know about who He is, and His ways, and what He longs for us, and what He calls us to be and do. God orchestrated the culmination of that book in such a way that we can know him and his purposes. So that's the kind of knowledge Paul is talking about in this verse. It's knowledge. He also talks about, uses the word discernment. What's discernment? I was thinking about that this week, discernment. We, all, we pray for that. Lord, give me discernment. But what do we mean when we pray for that and we ask that question? Well, discernment is having what's necessary to see the landscape in front of you as you make a choice or a decision. Being able to see all the variables at play. Or give me discernment so that I may right, make the right decision. I might act the right way. Uh, so you're able to choose the way that is wise. Paul's prayer for them is this ever-growing love that will gain more experiential knowledge of God. And that will gain a perspective that allows his readers to live in such a way that they are discerning. So as, as we move through on in our passage, the thing we find is that our view and our pursuit of godly love affects our conduct and our lifestyle. Look at the next two verses, and let's read them together, verses, nine, uh, verses 10 and 11. It says, so that, so I want you to grow in love, knowledge, and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he wants their love to grow in knowledge and discernment for a reason. It's not just full stop right there. It's for a reason. Again, love wasn't the end-all, be-all. And in the same way, knowledge and discernment were the end goals. What we're seeing a progression. Love is the root. 
It grows through knowledge of God and discernment. And the result then is this spilling out of the character of God into our life. And we then spill out in God's character upon those around us. So if we love God this way, if we love him in the same way that God loves, in this 1 Corinthians kind of way, this 1 Corinthians 13 way, if we are continually ever growing in our knowledge of God, then three things begin to happen. That's what Paul says here. Three things begin to happen. First, we begin to approve things that are superior. That's what he says there, superior. Some translations say excellent. Uh, we, we approve and affirm the things that God approves. Our standards begin to match up and align with his standards. The, the literal translation, I love this from the Greek, for that word superior refers to things that make a difference. I read that and I was like, that's awesome. We, have, we affirm the things that make a difference. We, we affirm the things that are superior. So much of what's at the core uh, of, of each generation is about making a difference in this world. Though each generation may, may communicate that differently or act that out differently, we, uh, we all, whether it's from the youngest to the oldest, each of our generations at our core, we want to make a difference in this world. So you want to make a difference in this world? How do you do that? It's by aligning, aligning your values, your standards, the things you approve with God's values and his standards, the things that he approves. In Isaiah 55, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as high as the heavens is, is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Making a difference in the world won't be accomplished apart from God's ways, which are higher than our ways. We want to see justice in this world? Well, it won't be found in any other way than in God's way. We want to see persecution end? It's not going to be in the schemes of man. You want to see nations reach with the good news of Jesus? No plan of man will accomplish that. Approving superior things... Things that make a difference in the world only comes through growing in knowledge of who God is in Christ, which is found in the knowledge of his word, which will only come from an act of choice to love him with your life. So there's this kind of this progression, this domino that falls. Secondly, second, our lives begin to look pure and blameless when we do this. And it's not that this switch is, is flipped and instantaneously we are pure and blameless. Sure, on the cross, we know when we put faith in Jesus that God now sees not our sinfulness and our, 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 um, our rejection of him, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. But the fact remains that we still live in a broken world. Until the day Christ returns, we, things are still broken. We still mess up. We still fall. We still choose to go our way instead of God's way. But as we grow in these things and we work through this progression we're talking about, we're shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ. And throughout the rest of our lives, we're trending towards being more like Jesus in our trajectory so as we pursue this 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, and then we seek to continually grow in experiential knowledge of, of God and discernment, and as we begin to approve the things that are superior and make a true difference in the world the way that God defines it, the product will be a shaping and a molding into the likeness of Christ. And this is a day in and day out kind of habit that we establish. We live this way with an eye on 
Jesus return to make all things right. And that day becomes kind of our target that our eyes are set upon. Uh, Don Carson had some really powerful thoughts on this particular subject in his commentary on this passage. And, and I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm sorry, Jeremy's going to put it so graciously on the screen for us. Thank you, Jeremy. But bear with me because this is a, a long section, but I didn't want to leave any of it out. You know, you, as you do sermon prep, you, you know, a lot of the biggest, the hardest task is cutting stuff. And I couldn't cut any of this. I'm sorry. This was just too rich and too good. So read along with me. Uh, Carson writes, Paul does not appeal to the day of Christ, the day of his return, in order to introduce a veiled threat. He's not saying, you, must, you really must start showing more signs of this righteous conduct I've been talking about, or you may be caught out in the end and face horrible judgment, or at the very least have a great deal of explaining to do. Rather, he's saying something that most Christians will find even more compelling. Paul is telling them that they must live with a view to the day of Christ, that is, they must live in such a way that they show they remember they are moving toward that day and are utterly constrained by it. On that day, in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, 2 Peter 3.13, the fruit of our lives will be entirely righteous. Even now, Paul says, Christians will live with that day in view and will produce more, much righteousness, sorry, much righteous fruit in anticipation of that day. That is part of the call toward excellence. The church is to see itself as an outpost of heaven. It's a microcosm of the new heaven and new earth, brought back, as it were, into our temporal sphere. So this phrase here that we see here, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, in verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are superior, may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. It's not about fear, it's not about guilt or shame that our, our sinful flesh, we read that and immediately, man, I just might, I'm not measuring up to that. Man, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm not, ugh, is everything all right with me? You know, what's wrong with me that I can't do this? No, it's, that's not, a bit, not about it at all. This is about hope that we have in who Christ is. We live this way with the promise that one day every single habit, every single life pattern, Every single life action will indeed be perfect and blameless. So we see here, Paul has three things. He says, one, you're going to approve superior things. Two, you begin to look blameless and pure. The third, finally, is Paul prays that this church's love will grow in knowledge and discernment so that they are filled with the fruit of righteousness. All of this has just been building throughout this passage and these verses. We started off defining love. And we've worked through all the way to where we are now. And, and as we grow not only in love, but the firsthand knowledge that comes from going through deep, deep in God's word, our life actions change. And ultimately, we see the fruit that the righteousness of Christ produces in our life. The, the righteousness that was purchased for our sin on the cross begins to manifest in our lives. Paul writes it another way in, in Galatians 5, in a very familiar passage to many of you. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is what your life and my life looks like when we grow in our relationship with Christ as he works through us. If we'll commit to pursuing Christ, this is the shift that happens. It's the promise that God, through his spirit, will cultivate this within us. 
will cultivate these attributes within us. Verse 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's interesting Paul uses that word filled. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. And, and he's referring to, to Christ uh, filling our hearts with this. And it's, it's, it's interesting he uses that word because it's the same word he uses in Colossians 2.10. And you've been filled by him who is the head of over every ruler and authority. Talking about Christ filling our life with his spirit. That's the same sentiment. It's, it's about the fruit of righteousness that's displayed through life action. And the link between these two is pretty interesting because we see here that this isn't something that we generate on our own. It's not something that we just create or will into happen, even though we've been talking a lot about willing things into happen and choosing. Uh, it comes through the working of Christ in our lives. As much emphasis as we've placed on working hard and living well, the reality is that we can only do that because of the grace of God in our lives. Last week, uh, Mark preached a powerful sermon on this very thing, and he addressed kind of this friction point of God's sovereignty and how he produces work and life and, and all these things in our life, and yet we're called to pursue God, and that's our responsibility. And for many years, I have loved the quote that he used from Spurgeon last week. And when someone posed the question, you know, Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And Spurgeon's response was, you don't have to reconcile good friends. That's, that's something that you and I, in this life, we will never be able to work out fully. But we can trust that God is calling us to trust in his faithfulness and his sovereignty while calling us to be obedient to these things. We know that that's true. And I want to reiterate that truth from last week. None of us can say that it was by our own hard work and our merit that we have earned anything from God. Or we've earned the love of God even. I love how Ephesians 2.1 puts it. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Many years ago, I had a, a seminary professor that, that pointed out a truth one day in class about that verse. Uh, he just posed a question to the class as he's lecturing. He says, How can a dead person put faith in God? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So, you're so proud of yourself. How can a dead person put faith in God, though? If ever there's a moment when you think much of yourself, just realize dead people can't put faith. Dead people can't actually do anything. Uh, how can a dead person choose to follow God? There must first be a resurrection and new life before the dead person can follow after God. I say that simply to point out that none of us will be following Jesus now if it were not for God pursuing us and rescuing us. He did that work, and now he calls us to follow after him with our lives. In the same way, as we are radiant, he produces, uh, obedient, he produces the fruit, as we are obedient in that. It's like Paul told the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was actually God who gave the growth in all those things. During our holiday club a couple weeks ago, this, uh, some of you kind of flinched when I said that because it was such a traumatic Hard week. I'm kidding. Uh, we uh, our, all the children learned the verse Ephesians two uh, two ten. Can any of our leaders remember recite that? I won't put you on the spot. I'm kidding. I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> Some of you begin to sweat there. But Ephesians two ten says, "For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do." That's what we're made for. We're his workmanship, his masterpiece 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. The two go hand in hand. Therefore, if you believe that this is too hard or too hard of a task, the truth is you're walking in your own strength. And the reality is God did this for you. Just walk in who he is. Trust in who he is. Rest in this process and walk through the things that we're talking about And because ultimately it's not about you and me. That should bring a lot of comfort to our heart this morning. It should free us to trust in who God is. After all, look at how this ends because we're, we're going to bring this to a close shortly. Verse 11 says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All of this we learn now is actually about that phrase to the glory and praise of God. So Paul praying for them to grow in love, praying for them to grow in experiential knowledge and discernment, approving superior things, gaining all these, these character traits, looking with the, with the end view that Christ is returning, is also that glory and praise will be given to God. It's a win-win situation. God gives us what is best as we're about doing those things, but it's in the living out of these things that, we, that will bring him much glory. So that, that leaves us kind of with our application questions this morning. Are you living this way in your life? Am I living this way? Do you, do you find yourself exhibiting these traits? Are you pursuing a love that is patient and kind and humble? Is that how you love God and love others? I read an illustration this week on this very topic. It posed the question that what if Jesus had acted uh, based on emotion in the garden? As he's praying and laboring in prayer, and he's saying, Father, I, 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 if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. If I don't have to suffer, don't let me suffer. In that moment, acting in emotion, he could have just gotten up out of the garden, left, and, and be done, and we're doomed. But instead, he says, yet, not my will, but your will be done. I choose to be obedient. That's the thing. The definition of love is important because it's God's definition of love. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually realized that God actually chose to love you. A great, as great of a person as I'm sure you are, you're human like the rest of us. And the Bible tells us that every single one of us has, lived, has willfully lived in opposition to who God is. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned, is the word it uses. In our holiday club, we use the definition that sin is anything we think, we say, or we do that goes against God. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, they all go our own way instead of God's way. Yet God chose to save us by sending Christ to live and die a horrific death in our place so that we could put faith in him and trust in him and be restored to him. He died so that we don't have to. God invites us to, to stake our entire lives on him and who he is to trust him and make him the Lord of our life. If we'll confess that sin to him and, and turn to him. So I invite you today just to, to follow up with that. If there's a, you have questions about that, we would love to talk to you. If uh, I would love to talk to you during the tea or coffee time or afterwards, or if you have a friend here that um, you'd like to talk to about that. Church family, are you pursuing a firsthand experiential knowledge of who God is through engaging in his word? Or is that kind of a quick check-in every few days, just checking and see how you're doing, God? Or is it time spent 
with your Father in His Word as He reveals more and more of who He is to you? Do you see how that flows and impacts the rest of your life, your habits? Looking back on your week, can you recognize how you've lived this out? Is there a desire to live this way? It all starts with love. It's anchored in that. This series has been all about prayer the last several weeks, and and I can't think of a more loving thing than pouring out your heart before the Lord on behalf of others by going to the one who is in control over all things and entrusting your brothers and sisters to him. Do you love your brothers and sisters well by praying for them? Are you pursuing that? Let us all be a people who are found faithful to do those things. Ultimately, uh, we pray that our lives will bring much glory to God. And this morning, we're going to respond in in a couple of different ways. Um, One, if you want to know more about following Jesus, we can certainly talk about that. We'll be here to do that. Secondly, we're going to sing a song of response and just reflect on all and ponder all that we've we've discussed and looked at this morning. And thirdly, we're going to respond through the table this morning. Um, We know that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body that was broken for you. And at the end of the meal, he took the cup and he raised it and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, Paul tells us, you remember his death until he comes again. Even now, we fix our eyes upon the hope that the coming day uh, when everything is going to be made right. And if you've put faith in Jesus this morning and made him the Lord of your life, we invite you to partake in the table. So remember that no matter where you are, if you've put faith and trusted in him with your life, he will continue to form you and shape you and mold you into who he desires you to be. Rejoice in that today. Let's pray. Father, we worship you today. We thank you that you are not done with us, that you continue to work on us. Help us to continually reframe that definition of love and to continually see it through your eyes, to continually come back and to choose Uh, to be patient and kind and humble and not enviousness. Lord, not to keep a record of wrongs, but to endure all things and bear all things. Help us to grow in knowledge of you, firsthand experiential knowledge through your word, to be wise and discerning. Help us, Lord, to to be people of character, to to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Help us to look forward to that day, Jesus, of your return, and that it would not be a place, something that's, motivating us by guilt or fear, but one of joy and hope and help us, Lord, ultimately to do all these things in a way that brings you much glory and honor. Have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.